Genesis 2, 18 through 24. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that's what, that was his name. The man gave him, gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up the place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to him. Then the man said, This, at last, is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The word of the Lord. The Bible, the Bible is given, written to give us one overarching story. And so we've been looking uh, at, the, at the scriptures for that. That's what the series is about. And we've started, of course, in Genesis, which is the beginning, seeing how Genesis presents the nature of the world, the nature of God, the nature of human beings, who he has made. I've mentioned in previous sermons, uh, and I'll say it again here as we're still uh, in Genesis, that Genesis was not written to give us uh, a modern scientific account of the origins of the world and the origins of humanity. So it wasn't written to provide a modern scientific account of reality, but rather to provide, provide a theological account of the primary and foundational basic truths of reality. So who is God? Who are human beings? What is the nature of the world in which we live? And Genesis's uh, articulation of the reality of the world, the reality of humanity, the reality of God is just as true for us today in the 21st century as it was when Genesis was first written. Originally, I had intended to do one sermon on the creation of humanity. So if you've been following along in uh, our scripture reading plan that tracks along the sermon series, you would have seen that we had one sermon for the creation of humanity, then that turned into two sermons on the creation of humanity, and now it's turning into three sermons on the creation of humanity. So we're going to stay on the creation of humanity today, and then I've adjusted a few things uh, in February to get us back on track. So keep reading according to the plan, because we're still going to cover all that scripture. We're just going to do it in a little bit of a different way. So uh, we are focusing again here on the creation of humanity. In the first sermon, on the creation of humanity. We looked at how humanity was created as king and queens of creation, the king and queen of the world. In last week's sermon, we looked at how humanity was created to be priests of the world, to mediate the, to, to mediate the life of God into the world through their own person. In this sermon, we're going to be looking at the interrelations of human beings. So human beings weren't just created to be kings and queens or to mediate the life of God, but were created in a way that they could relate to each other to reflect the image of God. 
Now, we're looking at uh, this text today, which is most often mined for insights on marriage, and that makes sense because this is the first marriage that we find in the Bible. But today's sermon is not a sermon about marriage per se. The truths that we encounter here in Genesis chapter 2 extend beyond marriage and are meant to help us understand how all human beings, how all human beings, married or not, were made to relate to each other and how our relationality as human beings is meant to be a reflection uh, of our being made in the image of God that points us back to God. So hopefully we'll see that as we uh, carry on through our passage. The sermon is going to be divided into two main parts. So the first part of the sermon, we're going to look at Genesis 2, 18 through 24. I'm going to do my best to walk us through that, to draw out the things that I think are important uh, for this point, how humanity is created with a relational component that reflects the image of God. And then I want to draw out some applications of that observation for our lives today. All right, so two main parts to the sermon. All right, so let's jump in to our text, all throughout Genesis 1, which we have seen the last number of weeks, uh, we read that everything that God has made is good. In fact, when we get to the end of Genesis 1, we read not only that things are good, but things are very good. God has made a very good world. But then we get to Genesis 2.18. And Genesis 2.18 is the first time that we encounter something in the creation narrative that is not good. It is not good that the man be alone. So Adam's solitude prior to the creation of Eve is declared not good. Genesis 1, of course, gave us the overview of creation from days 1 through 6. Genesis 2 is just day 6. So we're getting to zoom in on day 6. And we find out that when God made humanity, he didn't make humanity instantaneously side by side coexisting together from the start. But rather, he created the man, and then as we see here, he created the woman out of the man. So when God had just created the man, and the man in his solitude is all we have, Genesis 2.18 tells us that that wasn't good. That's the first thing we see that's not good. Man is in need, we read in 2.18, of a helper that is fit for him. This term helper is the Hebrew word azer, and the idea of a helper here does not then imply Adam's greatness or his sufficiency, but rather it implies Adam's need and his deficiency. In fact, the God of Israel, all throughout the Psalms, really all throughout the Scripture, is said to be Israel's azer. God is Israel's helper, and that doesn't imply a greatness to Israel, and if anything, it implies a greatness to God who comes in as the aid and the helper for Israel. So Adam has a task or a duty that he's not able to accomplish by himself, and he needs someone who can help him do it. So Eve, who's about to be introduced into the story as Adam's helper, is not being introduced into the story as Adam's administrative assistant or his servant, or someone to do the laundry for him, or cook him dinner, right? But rather as his necessary complement. So in the same way that God steps in to help Israel, Eve is going to step in to help Adam. 
So women, if you're ever having problems with your husbands, you can just say to them, I'm, I'm like God to you, all right? So, you know, just be careful with that one, but you use it as you see fit. So we haven't gotten to Eve yet, though, so let's just hang on with that. What does Adam need help with, right? The text doesn't say explicitly in 2.18. We don't read exactly why it's not good for him to be alone. But given all that has come prior and all that we've seen in the last few weeks, we know that Adam was created to be a priest king of the world who imaged forth God, who extended God's life into the world. Adam, by himself, apparently is not sufficient for this task. So then God to rectify the situation or to show that it can't be rectified in this way, he brings the animals before Adam and he parades them before Adam. And Adam names each of the animals, but none of them are suitable as the azer or the helper that Adam needs. None of them are able to help Adam fulfill his role as the image-bearing priest-king of the world. So then Adam is put into a deep sleep by God. God takes one of Adam's ribs fashions it and forms it into the woman. And then Adam wakes up, and behold, there is Eve. And immediately, Adam recognizes Eve as the azer, as the long-sought helper that he is in need of. Look what he says in verse 23. Then the man said, this at last, finally, I have found the one. This is the one that I need to help me. He says that Eve is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She is taken out of the man. And for this reason, then, the scriptures say, because she has been taken out of the man, because she has been drawn forth from the man, then the man and the woman will come together again in union and become one flesh. The man and the woman who were one in Adam, as it were, have been broken apart or split apart by God into into two distinct persons, and then these persons will seek to reunite humanity again in their union with each other, their one flesh relationship. Now, let me pause here because the language of one flesh is an important term, and I want to make sure that we understand it. Here, Because I think given our modern conceptions of sexual union, of marriage, whatnot, we can lose sight, I think, of what Genesis is telling us here about the man and the woman coming together as one flesh. The expression one flesh used here and then elsewhere in the Bible is not simply a reference to marriage. So we're not just reading here that Adam and Eve are going to get married enter into a covenant of marriage. Well, that's true. But the language of one flesh is used in Scripture specifically as a synonym for sexual union. So when we read that the man and the woman will come together as one flesh, we are reading that Adam and Eve will come together sexually. But not just come together sexually in the way that we in our modern 21st century context think about sex. We moderns tend to think about sex as something distinct from children and procreation. So given our modern contrivance of birth control, 
we tend to think of sex primarily as a means of recreation or bonding or as a way of expressing love. But however we think about it, we primarily think of sex as a pleasurable bodily activity between two people that ends in climax. So like all of our TV shows, our movies, uh, our songs that we sing, many of our books, the way that we portray sex and conceive of sex in our culture is not primarily as making babies, but as making love. But prior to the advent of modern birth control, the connection between sex and procreation was more innate. You couldn't get away from it as easily. So sex, not just in the ancient world in the days of Genesis, but really throughout the vast majority of human history, all the way up until the advent of modern forms of birth control, sex was not viewed as just a pleasurable bodily activity that involved only two people, but as an activity that inevitably involved a third person, a child. So we would miss that sometimes because of the way that our culture thinks about and approaches sex. But the normative experience in the vast majority of human history has been that when a man and a woman come together regularly in a one-flesh relationship, the natural result, the expected result, will be a child. So to bring this back to the biblical term one flesh here in Genesis, when Genesis is telling us that the man and the woman are going to become one flesh, this invariably means that they will have a baby. Indeed, the child, not just true for Adam and Eve, but it's, I think, true even for our own lives here, the child is the living proof that the two have become one flesh. Or we could say it like this. The child is the one flesh that the two have become. Or we could say it like this. When Adam and Eve have made love, the child is the love that they have made. So the Bible doesn't have, and much of human history doesn't have, a conception of sex as something distinct from and completely unrelated to procreation. But rather, sex and procreation just tend to go together. It's not to say that every instance of sex always results in a child, but there's an understanding in the pre-modern world that sex and procreation go together, and Genesis is working from that understanding. The child is the embodiment, the instantiation, or the tangible reality of the one flesh union that the man and the woman have entered into. So thus, sex, in its fullest expression, in its idealist expression, includes not two people, but three people. And that's the point that I'm trying to make here. John Chrysostom, he was a church father from the fourth century. He was the Archbishop of Constantinople. He was a pretty important guy in his day, still is, really. But he puts it this way. He says, the child is the bridge connecting the mother to the Father, so that the three become one flesh. That's why the Scripture says, he goes on to say, that's why the Scripture says that they, the mother, the father, and the child, shall be joined together in one flesh, namely a reference to the child. Now, make a little 
parenthetical comment here that is not to say, and he, John Chrysostom, goes on to say that this is not to say that unless a child is produced that there is no one flesh relationship. We can come together in a one flesh relationship that doesn't result in a child, and that it can be the result, uh, frankly, of just even things that are wrong biologically with us, brokenness and barrenness, can be a pain and a sorrow, and I know it is for many in our congregation. But the fact that it is a pain and a sorrow is itself evidence of the fact that we desire our lovemaking to produce a tangible expression of our love. We want it to, to manifest itself in some way. And it doesn't always do that. It doesn't mean that we're not one flesh. It just means that the one flesh relationship between the husband and wife has not produced the fruit that God intended naturally. But it's still a one flesh relationship. Back to our sermon. Thus, Genesis' statement that the man and the woman will become one flesh isn't merely a statement that Adam and Eve are going to be married or even that they're going to engage in sexual union with each other as a married couple. The statement is about the procreative fruit of their sexual union. So what we're reading here then at the end of Genesis 2 is not simply the creation of the man and the woman as distinct individuals, nor are we even reading about the establishment of the first marriage as something distinct from procreation. We're reading about the creation of the first family, the basic and essential foundation of all human relationships. So we exist, you and I, we all exist because of the man-woman-child relationship. Even if we have never been married and never produced offspring, we are the result of that relationship, right? So we are brought into the world through the man-woman-child relationship. Now, let's return back to our question about why it wasn't good for Adam to be alone. When we are introduced to Adam at the start of Genesis 2, which we saw last week, we saw that Adam was made in the image of God to be the priest king of the world, to mediate God's life to the world. And yet Adam himself wasn't able to convey the fullness of God's being without Eve's help. So what's going, what's going on here? Right? Adam is made in the likeness and image of God, but there's something not good about Adam and his solitude conveying the image and likeness of God. God, in whose image Adam is made is not a single monad. Now, when we are just reading just Genesis 1 and 2, we, we may not catch all this, right? Although I think it's here to be seen. But as we work our way through the story and we particularly come to the revelation of Jesus as a person and then the things that he teaches and then the teachings of the apostles and then the clarification of the church throughout the first number of centuries, we come to see that the monotheism of the Bible is not the monotheism of Judaism. It's not the monotheism of Islam. The monotheism of the Bible is a, is, a, is a Trinitarian monotheism, that God is not just a single monad. Ultimately, the Bible, the life and teachings of Jesus reveal to us that God is Trinity, that he is three in one. He's one divine nature subsisting in three distinct persons. So there's a oneness to God that relates to his nature, and then there's a threeness to God that relates to his persons. 
one divine nature, three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And that's what we Christians mean when we say that God is Trinity. Now, I don't pretend to understand the inner workings of the Trinity. It's getting to be pretty deep water. I think a few people drowned last service uh, in this water, which is my fault, no doubt, as the preacher. Right? These are deep waters. Augustine uh, once said, it is a rare soul who knows what he is talking about when he speaks of the Trinity. And I, I do not pretend to be a rare soul. But what is clear from the revelation of Jesus, from the whole of Scripture, the witness of the apostles and the early church, is that God exists as three in one. So it makes sense, then, that God's image needs to be more than just a single individual. We can't have God's image just be a single nature and a single person. God's image needs to be Trinitarian. And that's what we find here in Genesis 2. The man is created first, and then the woman is drawn forth from his side. She is consubstantial with the man, which is to say she is one substance. She is the same substance of the man. It's made very clear when we look at the way that Eve was made. Adam is made from the dirt. The animals are made from the dirt. But Eve is the only creature in all of the creation account that is not made from the dirt. She is made from the substance of Adam. She is drawn forth from his She is the same essence as Adam. Eve is bone of Adam's bone and flesh of Adam's flesh, just as, as the Creed says, the Nicene Creed, the Son is God of very God and light of light. Eve is not made in the way that the other animals are made, or even that animal, that, that Adam is made. She is, we might say, begotten, not made, just as the Creed says of Jesus. And then the man and the woman, who are consubstantial with each other, they come together in a loving union so fertile and so life-giving that it produces a living and personal expression of their love, a child. A child who is a third distinct person, distinct from both the man and the woman, and yet co-equally subsisting in the same human nature. Augustine, St. Augustine, Thomas Aquinas, Jonathan Edwards, uh, all wrote deeply on the Trinity. And uh, all of them together, interestingly, taught the idea that the Father and the Son loved each other, have loved each other eternally with a love that is so profound and so alive that that love is its own person. And they say that's what the Holy Spirit is. The Spirit is the love that passes back and forth eternally between the Father and the Son. I think it's a beautiful picture. It certainly corresponds with the idea that we're reading here in Genesis chapter 2, where the child is the expression of the love that exists or should ideally be the expression of the love that exists between the mother and the father. What we're seeing in Genesis 2 with the creation of humanity then is a rumor, it's a whisper, it's a foreshadowing of God's Trinitarian nature as expressed through his image. 
so that when God makes his image in the world, we should pause for a moment as we come to Genesis 2 and we should say there's more going on here than just a single person can convey. That God's nature, we don't fully understand all of it yet because we haven't got to the rest of the story, right? But there's more going on here than just God as a single individual up in heaven creating. There seems to be a personality of, 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 of God where there's more than one person, and yet there's a one. We don't, we don't know all of it, right? But we know that there's something going on here, right? From the hindsight of the Trinity, we can see it. Just as God exists as three distinct persons, united by one divine nature, so to his image exists as three distinct persons, united by one human nature. All right. How are we doing? Because that, 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 was, that was deep. That was deep. I had someone come up to me afterwards, and they're like, I, I don't know what you were talking about. I don't even know what I'm talking about. So we're trying to figure this all out, right? I am not suggesting, I'm not suggesting uh, that there aren't limits to any analogy. So nothing mortal, nothing finite, nothing created can convey the fullness of God's eternality uh, and God's infinitude, right? I'm not suggesting that the human trinity of man, woman, and child is identical in every way with the divine trinity of Father, Son, and Spirit. There are obviously, there are limits to where the analogy can't go all the way, right? But we see here in the Father, uh, we see in the man, woman, child a, a, uh, an earthly, finite picture or rendering or image of the eternal Father, Son, Spirit relation. The theological point that I'm trying to go to here is not that every person needs to get married and have a child in order to reflect the image of God, right? All of us reflect the image of God. And in one sense, we could say all of us are part of a family, right? Like we didn't get into this world without being part of the man, woman, child trinity, right? It's how we came into this world. Right, so the point of this is not you need to get married and have a child, otherwise you don't reflect the image of God. Rather, the point is that the image of God in humanity is relational, not just singular. So if nothing else that I've said has made sense up to this point, right, then just hang on to this. Right? The image of God in humanity is relational. It's not just singular. We express who God is not only in our individuality, in our personal rectitude and holiness. Sometimes I think we can think that way, right? Like, how am I doing bearing the image of God? And I think about it in terms of my own distinct person. How am I communicating my life to God and to the world around, right? But we don't just reflect God's image in our own personal rectitude and holiness, but in our relationships, by how we treat other people. This is also how we communicate the image of God. Human beings, as those made in the image of God, were created by God to exist in interdependent, loving relationships that reflect the intra-Trinitarian loving relationships of the Godhead. All right? So that can be tricky, though. Tricky to live out. Relationships are tricky. So I want to talk now here about two ways that I think we can get this wrong. Now we're back to two ditches. These are officially ditches. I wasn't sure if last week they were ditches. These are ditches, right? 
So the first mistake I think we can make about our relationality is to, uh, is to deny our need for relationships, to just outright deny our need for relationships. We, uh, to acknowledge our need for relationships, for many of us, is to acknowledge uh, let me start that sentence again. To acknowledge our need for relationships is to acknowledge our likeness to God, but it is also, at the same time, to acknowledge our innate dependence and need. Acknowledging our need for human relationships exposes us, and it highlights our vulnerability. And for many of us, that is very hard to do. We do not like to be vulnerable. We don't like to admit vulnerability to ourselves, and we much less like to admit vulnerability to others. We don't want to need anybody. We don't want to be in a position of requiring an azer, a helper. We live our lives like we're Adam before the creation of Eve, attempting to be independent and self-sufficient, except Adam wasn't self-sufficient in, in his independence. That's the whole point of Genesis 2. No one can thrive apart from human relationships because human relationships, and we saw this significantly last week, human relationships are the very means by which we experience the life of God. God expresses himself in the world through humanity. We are the priests of God. We experience the life of God through our human relationships. Human beings are the conduits through which the life of God flows into the world. Sometimes we deny our need for relationships because of our personality type. We're just more of an independent person, right? And we don't immediately gravitate to relationships. Others of, us, others of us, because of our family of origin dynamics, maybe it was just the way that we were raised to not put yourself out there and to need. Others of us, perhaps we move away from relationships because of a particular hurt or a harmful experience in our past. Whatever the case... Perhaps this morning, you're the kind of person that has found it easier to close off within yourself, to self-protect, and to deny your need of others. But there is no life, there's no joy, there is no thriving down that road. You can't be all that God intends you to be if you can't learn how to embrace and benefit uh, from your relationship with others. We need to be vulnerable in our relationship with others. If you're the kind of person who tends to deny your need for relationships, then let me encourage you to grapple with God on this matter. Maybe you wish that you were more independent, that you could be more independent, right? But God is the one who has made you to be dependent. And if you don't like the fact that you are dependent, then you need to take that up with God because he's the one that's made you to be dependent. You can't image forth God all alone. He is the one who created you to be in need. Okay, now, for my super spiritual parishioners, hear this. He has created you to be in need of humans, not just him. And I think sometimes we want to overly spiritualize it. I don't need people. I've got God. Well, that's not how God works it. Right? When Jesus came and established the church... And he made his body. We are the body of Christ. 
And how do we access the head, who is Christ, except through the body? And we can't get to God independent of the human relationships that he has put into our lives. So we need to come to terms with the fact that God does mediate himself to us through human relationships. Where do you need to embrace your vulnerability and dependence and open yourself up to an azer, to another human being, to a helper in your life? Maybe you have plenty of relationships, but they're all on the surface. You, you orchestrate them in such a way that they deny vulnerability and dependency. No one really sees into your life. No one really knows your soul. Don't hold on to the supposed safety of independence so tightly that you end up starving yourself from the life of God that God would give you through relationships. When you seek independence from relationships, you're cutting yourself off from the life of God. We all need help. I was so encouraged a number of weeks ago to hear that the launch of our Celebrate Recovery had 30 people in it to begin. Initially, we weren't sure whether there be four, whether there be five. We didn't know. There were over 30 people that were there. And here's folks that have come together, and they've said, I need help to be all that God wants me to be. And I can't just do it just me and my Bible by myself in my room. I need an azer. I need people to come alongside of me and to mediate the grace and the life of God to me through these relationships. And if you come to Celebrate Recovery, you know that here's folks that are bearing some difficult burdens, right? They are, they are exposing themselves in places of weakness, and so many of us could learn from that, right? We can learn from that, that we need to take the places of our weakness or the places of our pain, and we need to bring those into, out into the light and relationship with other people and receive the grace of God that comes through our relationships with others. We have small groups that was mentioned in our announcements that are starting up, right? So maybe uh, Celebrate Recovery isn't the thing that you need, but maybe a small group is something that you need. But whatever the case, find some people. Learn how to find some people whom you can bear your soul and you can be real with and experience the grace of God and the life of God passed to you. So that's the first mistake, because we just deny our need for relationships, because it feels safer. But here's the second mistake. We depend utterly on our relationships, independent of God. So some of us just jump right out of one ditch, all the way across the road into the other ditch, right? We move in the complete opposite direction. We don't deny our need for human relationships. We depend utterly on our human relationships as though they were God. We reject the ditch of independence and end up in the ditch of codependence. Our lives become so intertwined with others that we deny the integrity of our own personhood. We so depend on others as if they were God that what others think of us, independent of God, that what others think of us, we don't even... Uh, their opinion of us becomes what we think of ourselves to the point that we don't even know who we are anymore. Relationships with others, other human beings, are important. And we need human relationships in order to thrive in our humanity. But we were never meant to find our soul identity and existence in our relationships with other humans independent of God. 
Humans were made according to the image of God, but humans are not the image of God. We are not the life of God ourselves. The life of the world, the life of humanity, is found in human relationships, but it is not sourced in human relationships. We humans are the conduits of God's life to each other in the world, but we are only the conduits. And a professor who would said, he would say when he got to a, a complex part in his lecture, he would say, I'm slicing the bologna pretty thin here. I feel like I'm slicing the bologna pretty thin on this point, but it's an important one. Right? We are the conduits of the life of the world, but we are not the life of the world. And we need to keep those separate if your tendency is to fall into the ditch of depending utterly on human beings independent of God. The life itself is sourced in the relational richness of the triune Godhead. That's where the life of the world is. So do you depend upon human relationships as if they themselves were the divine relations, as, as though they themselves were God? Do you find yourself placing all your hope for life in how others treat you, think of you, judge you? Your whole sense of identity and value and worth is based upon what others think of you. Perhaps this is how you interact with your spouse. Perhaps this is how you interact with your children or your peers. That their opinions of you weigh on the scales heavier than God's opinion. Right, that they become God to you? Are you clinging to the conduit of humanity rather than the divine life contained within the conduit? I see this all the time when I do marriage counseling. A couple will come, and they're expressing frustrations in the marriage, and very often what is going on in a marriage, maybe this is you today, so this is free marriage counseling today right here, you're about to get it, but very often what is going on in a marriage is that there's a deficiency, there's an emptiness, there's a void that the husband and the wife have brought into the marriage. And they're looking for the other person to fill it up. They're both looking for life. What they're really looking for is the life of God. But they haven't found it there, so they're looking for it in someone else. But they end up being like two people that are in the open sea who can't swim, looking to the other person for help, and they just grab each other and pull each other under because neither of them have the life of God contained within them. And if you come to your relationships not having the life of God contained within you, and you think you're going to get it from someone else, and they think they're getting it from you, which is very often how marriage works, right, is you end up just pulling each other under. Two drowning people clinging to each other, trying to wrench life out of each other. It doesn't work. Find your hope first in God. And then you will be able to bring to your relationships the hope of God to others. You'll be able to find in your relationships the hope of God in others. All right. Now, the perceptive listener at this point may have discerned a problem, a bit of a catch-22. We're going to see in the coming weeks, and we know it just because of how we live our lives that humanity has been severed from the life of God. This is the story that we encounter in Genesis chapter 3 and that so much of the Bible is about that Jesus is coming to fix. We were created to access the life of God. Here's the, here's the catch-22. We were created to access the life of God through human relationships, but once humanity turned a blind eye to God, human beings no longer mediate the life of God to each other. 
So I need to find God in human relationships, but human relationships no longer mediate God. That's the problem in which we find ourselves in this fallen world. Cut off from the life of God, humanity became like one big drowning married couple, right? <laughs> Just clinging to each other and pulling each other down. This is the history of the world when it comes to relationships. As we feel the void in ourselves, we know we're falling short. We know we're lacking something. And so we move to what seems to be the most obvious place to find the lack, other human beings. But they're lacking it too. And that's why they were coming to us. And we end up just cannibalizing each other, trying to find what only God can provide. Somehow, God needs to step back into the system and re-inject, as it were, his life into humanity. So how does he do that? Well, that brings us to communion. Normally, I walk all the way around, but today I'm just going to take a quick step down because it's simpler. So no one, <laughs> no one panic. No one panic. Um, so how does God do this, right? How does God re-inject the divine life back into humanity? He does it through Christ. He does it through the Son of God, who is himself the eternal divine nature, personified as the second person of the Trinity, who comes and takes upon himself, in addition to his divine nature, true humanity. Jesus, in his person, reunites the Godhead with humanity. This is why he is the true and great and better eternal priest king. He, he himself is the image of God not just made according to the image of God. He is the one who contains in himself the marriage, the union of humanity with heaven. He brings these together. And so what we celebrate today at the table is the reunion of the life of God with the world. We're reminded that God, in inviting us to participate in Christ, is to participate in the reunion of heaven and earth the life of God, and the life of humanity. Theologians would talk about, or they do still talk about, the perichoretic relationship of the Trinity. It's a fancy word that just means the indwelling, the mutual coherence and indwelling of the Father, Son, and the Spirit. They have a perichoretic relationship. But that in salvation, God reaches down through the Son and the Spirit and brings us up into this perichoretic dance of the Trinity, and we participate in the Trinitarian life of God, always graced, not as native members of the Trinity, but brought up into that life to participate in it through Christ, who is the bridge, the true child that stands as the one spirit, one flesh relation between God and humanity. So as we celebrate communion today, let this be a reminder for you of the union that God has made with humanity through Christ. It was not a free or easy union. We celebrate through these elements because they represent the body and the blood of Jesus, and Jesus had to shed his body, to break his body and shed his blood in order for us to participate in this union. But he has done so. And so... Don't just remember the pain and the suffering and the sorrow. Remember the victory 
that he has also bought for us through his body and his blood.